U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is heading to China this week in an effort to boost the economic ties between the two countries. It's Monday, July 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action, student loans, and LGBTQ rights will influence next year's presidential election. The court is already facing criticism from President Biden. There's done more to unravel basic rights and basic decisions than any court in recent history. Also this hour, the week-long protests in France after police killed a teenager outside of Paris. Plus, concerns among beekeepers in the U.S. who've seen about half their colonies die and what's behind new restrictions in place on Twitter. In sports, Red Sox win, cloudy with a chance for rain throughout the day today in the 80s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will travel to China this week. NPR's Emily Fang reports Yellen's trip comes just weeks after Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Beijing to meet with top government officials. The Treasury Department confirmed Yellen's anticipated three-day trip. She's headed to Beijing to meet with senior Chinese officials. She says she's there to talk about how important it is for the two countries to manage their often conflicted relationship and find things like climate change or debt relief that the two can work on. The Biden administration has been working to increase the frequency of contact between the U.S. and China, but there's still a lot they disagree on. And just after Blinken's visit to China last month, Biden called China's top leader Xi Jinping a dictator, remarks China hit back at and called absurd. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. Congressional Democrats are increasing the pressure on President Biden to try to circumvent a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that strikes down his student debt relief program. The president on Friday announced that his administration will soon implement a number of workarounds, but that it could take some time. Speaking on ABC News on Sunday, Congressman Ro Khanna said he hopes repayments will be frozen while the plan gets going. This is a real hardship. And when people out there are saying uh, that they are relying on this, we should at least pause it until that is forgiven, especially when we have a Supreme Court who, in my view, has usurped the authority of Congress. In a 6-3 decision, the justices sided with six Republican state attorneys general who sued to block the plan on the grounds that it exceeded the federal government's authority. City officials in Los Angeles are scrambling to accommodate the latest busload of migrants arriving from Texas. Jerry Clayton from Texas Public Radio reports it's part of a program started by Governor Greg Abbott that sends migrants to what are known as sanctuary cities. A bus arrived at Union Station from Texas carrying 41 migrants, including 11 children. It's the second such bus in the past two weeks. The migrants were from El Salvador, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Guatemala, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Belize. The bus originated in Brownsville and arrived in Los Angeles. Los Angeles officials were aware of the migrants' arrival, but had not been given any formal advance notice. A spokesperson for L.A. Mayor Karen Bass said the city will treat the migrants with dignity and respect. Over 21,000 migrants have been bused from Texas out of state since 2022. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. Stocks across Asia closed higher today. Markets in China and Hong Kong posted gains, with Japan's Nikkei average ending at a 33-year high. This is NPR.
Violent protests are continuing in cities across France. Riots broke out last week after a 17-year-old boy was killed by police during a traffic stop. Thousands of people took to the streets, setting fire to buildings and vehicles. Thousands have been arrested after nearly a week of demonstrations. The family of the victim has urged for calm. As the July 4th holiday approaches, federal regulators are warning people to be careful using fireworks. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, experts say the products can cause thousands of injuries and even several fatalities each year. An 11-year-old boy and a man who was commemorating the death of a friend were among those who died last year in fireworks-related accidents. 11 people were killed and more than 10,000 others were treated for injuries related to fireworks in 2022. That's according to new data released by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Regulators say the majority of fireworks-related injuries happened during the one-month period around July 4th, and that's why it's important to exercise caution this time of year. Experts suggest lighting fireworks Fireworks outside only, keeping them away from children, and never using fireworks while under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Wimbledon is getting underway in London today. Tennis champ Novak Djokovic will go for a fifth consecutive championship and an eighth overall. On the women's side, Venus Williams is back on the court this year. She made her debut at Wimbledon 26 years ago. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Today, the registry will begin issuing licenses to drivers regardless of immigration status. State lawmakers approved the new law last year over a veto by then-Governor Charlie Baker. Voters then upheld the law in November. Applicants must still provide proof of identity and Massachusetts residency and pass a driver's license test. A driving record of a Boston city councilor is under question after she crashed her car into a home in Jamaica Plain. Police say councilor Kendra Laura was driving with a revoked license when she went off the road into the house on Friday. A spokesperson for Laura says she was trying to avoid another crash. Her seven-year-old son was in the car. He had to get stitches and is expected to fully recover. Laura's driving record shows multiple violations. Those include driving without a registration and failing to appear in court after running a traffic sign. Senator Elizabeth Warren is pushing local school leaders to electrify their bus fleets. In letters to municipal officials, Warren encouraged them to apply for the EPA Clean School Bus Grants Program. That program offers federal aid to help districts electrify their school buses. It's already provided nearly $30 million to Massachusetts districts that paid for 75 new buses. A Washington, D.C. nonprofit is helping students transfer from community colleges to selective four-year institutions in New England. Alden Bourne reports those students are people of color from lower-income families and first-generation students. The Aspen Institute's Transfer Scholars Network works with 14 community colleges, including Holyoke Community College, which nominates students. Adam Rabinowitz is with the Institute. They identify the schools that they're interested in, and a four-year partner reaches out to them, a senior admissions leader usually, and provides dedicated, personalized support and kind of walks through the various steps to lead to the ultimate application process and sets that student up to be as competitive as possible. Since the program started in 2021, seven students have enrolled at Mount Holyoke, Williams, Amherst, and Smith. There are additional four-year partners in eastern Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Maine. 
For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. The Red Sox beat the Blue Jays 5-4 to yesterday in Toronto. The Sox are off today. They'll host the Texas Rangers tomorrow. Cloudy with a chance for showers and storms throughout the day today. It'll be in the 80s. More rain possible overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Rain tomorrow, but it should clear out by the evening and time for fireworks. Back to the 80s. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Coming up, we interview Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of Education. The Supreme Court just eliminated President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. So what now? We begin with the politics of several Supreme Court decisions. They touch on likely issues in the 2024 election. NPR's senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro is here. Domenico, good morning. Hey, good morning, Steve. Okay, so the court said President Biden overreached when he forgave more than $400 billion worth of student loans. Biden says he's going to try to forgive them in some other way, but what happens now? Yeah, I mean, Biden's going to try another path, you know, through the Education Department and the Higher Education Act. But a lot of legal scholars thought that how Biden went about this originally was not going to hold up in court, especially with this conservative majority court, and it did not. Some are blaming Biden for what they see as overpromising and underdelivering. The White House hopes to blunt that by blaming Republicans and the court. Here was the president speaking about this decision. What I did I thought was appropriate and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give Boris false hope, but the Republicans snatched away the hope that they were given, and it's real, real hope. You know, how younger voters in particular interpret this is going to be key because they're a critical part of the Democratic base and they've been skeptical of Biden. Yeah, interesting question. Do they blame the president because it didn't happen or blame the court for getting in the way? Two other big decisions I want to ask about. The court sided with a Colorado web designer who wanted clearance in advance to deny wedding services to same-sex couples. The court said fine. The court also struck down using race as a factor for elite university admissions. So how did those rulings compare to public? opinion. Well, when you look at public opinion on these rulings, it's mixed. I mean, the country is becoming increasingly supportive of LGBTQ rights in general, but for affirmative action, it's a little more complicated. In general, Americans say they're in favor of continuing affirmative action programs, but when pollsters ask specifically about the use of race in college admissions, majorities say they're against the practice. That's especially true of whites and Asian Americans. Mm. The question here really is whether this decision motivates black voters to go out and vote in some respects, because we're seeing right now that we're in a moment where many black Americans feel under assault with not just this decision, but policies that have been enacted across the country. And when you add that to the anger that many people feel on the in the middle and on the left about abortion rights, Democrats certainly hope that these decisions will keep their base engaged ahead of the next presidential election next year. There's certainly a partisan difference on views of the Supreme Court. Republican presidential candidates have been praising it. Oh, absolutely. You know, the candidates very much lined up behind the court. Former President Trump took credit for appointing these justices. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis actually fired back at Trump, pointing out that in 2015, Trump had said he was fine with affirmative action. Former Vice President Pence even went so far as to say that there's no racial inequity in schools any longer, and that affirmative action may have been necessary 50 years ago, but not any longer. When you just look at test scores, though, I mean, the racial achievement gap is still wide. And, you know, even if it's a bit 
bit smaller than the 60s and 70s, you know, Republican candidates are really running to the right on a host of policies, many of which are unpopular with the broader public. Domenico, thanks as always for your insights. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. The man who oversaw the student loan forgiveness is Miguel Cardona. He's a one-time fourth-grade teacher in Connecticut who rose to become President Biden's education secretary. The Supreme Court opinions over the student loans refer to him 151 times, and now it is his job to help pick up the pieces. Mr. Secretary, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Okay, we heard the president say on Friday that he would use a different law to forgive student loans again. Is that really going to work? Yes, we are moving forward um, with the authority given to me under the Higher Education Act. And, um, you know, we're going to keep fighting. Uh, We believe the Supreme Court got it completely wrong. We believe that they were ideological plaintiffs. um, And I had the authority under the HEROES Act, but that decision was made. We're going to move forward uh, using whatever pathway we can to provide uh, that relief. I want to ask about the practical effect of that, because I was reading the Supreme Court opinions, as many people were, and of course the Supreme Court majority, the conservative majority, invoked what they call the major questions doctrine, a recent innovation of conservative legal scholars. And a simple way to put it is that even if the law seems to you to give you discretion to do something like forgive a lot of student loans, they're not going to let you do it. They're going to tell you that that belongs to Congress, even if you think you have discretion. Aren't you just going to be blocked again? You know, in my, my opinion, the court substituted itself for Congress. Um, the HEROES Act stated very clearly, I can waive or modify any statutory, uh, statutory uh, regulatory provision. Um, so, unfortunately, that's this context that we're, we're in right now. I mean, the court has made but I mean, Chief, Chief, Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts said you completely rewrote it, and he's got the power. Isn't he going to block you a second time? Well, we're using the SCOTUS decision and how they rationalize their decisions to, to guide our next step forward. So we're taking that into account, and we do believe we have a legal path uh, to provide debt forgiveness. So I I know that you're going to uh, hold off on proceedings against people who can't pay in the months ahead. You're also going forward with this effort to regulate a new way to forgive student loans. Would you then tell the millions of borrowers, some of whom may be listening now, don't worry, we got this. You're not going to be saddled with this student debt. It's going to get fixed. The three things that we're doing um, are uh, creating another pathway to debt forgiveness, which the process is going to take longer, as you heard the president on Friday. Right. We're also rolling out the income-driven repayment plan, which is we believe to be uh, a, a, going to be a game changer for so many who want to go to college but can't afford the monthly payments. Uh, we're rolling that out this summer, and we are doing an on-ramp to to reduce the uh, potential for delinquencies for those who are struggling to make payments their first year, despite the payment uh, pause ending uh, and insurance excuse me, um, interest accruing, we, we do want to make sure we're supporting our borrowers. My message to borrowers is this. We're not done fighting. We're going to continue to fight. We recognize how important it is to them. And this administration is going to keep fighting. That, that's the message that I want the borrowers to hear. Would you reassure them that they don't need to plan on paying back those loans? Of course not. I, I, there's a, we're restarting the loans. Um, what, I'm, what I want to reassure them is that there's one team um, that is fighting for them, and there's a team that's trying to block them. And the team that's trying to block them have received millions in debt forgiveness themselves. So the hypocrisy really uh, speaks for itself. We're going to keep fighting for them. We recognize higher education should be accessible to more people in this country. 
and you shouldn't be saddled in debt for the rest of your life. That's what we're fighting for. I guess when you refer to millions in debt forgiveness, you're referring to uh, pandemic loan forgiveness. And there were members of Congress who were associated with that. But moving on from that issue, just very briefly, there was, of course, another ruling in education last week. The Supreme Court said it is unconstitutional for elite universities to use race as a factor in choosing which students to admit. It seems to me universities have a choice. They can just do away with affirmative action or try to find some creative other way to do it legally. What advice would you give universities across the country? Well, yeah, th this is another decision that really takes us back. Um, you know, in this country, we're okay with um, taking into account wealth and lineage and legacy status, but to, uh, to look at racial balance in the school to make sure that there are diverse learning environments that people have a problem with that. We're not taking that lightly either. Within 45 days, we're going to have guidance for college presidents. We're going to do a national convening, a uh, national summit on educational opportunity at the Department of Education. And then we're going to publish best practices so that uh, college presidents and boards of trustees can learn from one another on how to maintain um, a diverse uh, student body. We know that when students learn in a diverse student body, they get a better education. Everyone benefits from that. So your goal is to continue pushing for diversity even after the Supreme Court has said that is wrong, at least the way you've been doing it. Absolutely. And the Supreme Court didn't say it was wrong. The Supreme Court took away a tool uh, that we used to um, promote uh, racial diversity. So it was a tool, meaning using race when all things are equal and we have candidates that have earned their way into the campus and they have to decide between students uh, using race as a, as a factor to determine racial balance. So it doesn't touch the intent. Our intent is stronger than ever to make sure that all students have access. Okay. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Steve. In Southern California, thousands of hotel workers are on strike. They walked off the job yesterday in a bid for better pay and benefits. LA's Libby Rainey reports. At the Intercontinental Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, scores of employees on Sunday weren't inside working, but were outside picketing. These are housekeepers, dishwashers, servers, and frontline workers at some of the nation's most recognizable and ritziest hotels, like the Beverly Hilton. These employees say Los Angeles just isn't affordable anymore, and that's why they're demanding a major raise. Jose Zuniga was picketing on Sunday. Expensive, expensive to live in L.A. It's super hard when you have to pay rent, when you have to pay gas. Especially rent in L.A. is just tremendous. Hotel workers like Zuniga make, on average, about $25 an hour. They're asking for an immediate $5 per hour hike, with raises totaling $11 over three years. Christina Betancourt works at the Ritz-Carlton. 85% of my income goes towards rent because I just moved to L.A. So it's really hard to even find a place in L.A. that you can afford on one income. Betancourt also says her schedule is impossible to predict due to the elimination of daily room cleaning, a policy many hotels implemented during the pandemic. The union she belongs to, Unite Here Local 11, is also bargaining for manageable staffing workloads and better health care. One large hotel, the Westin Bonaventure, made a tentative deal with the union last week, averting a strike there. But contracts at more than 60 hotels in Los Angeles and Orange Counties have lapsed. 
A spokesman for the bargaining group representing dozens of the hotels said they remain open for business and they're ready to keep negotiating. Workers like Zuniga say they're willing to stay on the picket lines until they get what they're asking for. I'm getting ready for however long it takes. The hotel industry says elected officials should be held accountable for the skyrocketing cost of housing, not them. For NPR News, I'm Libby Rainey in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, an anti-corruption candidate in Guatemala has beaten all expectations to secure a place in the presidential elections coming up in August. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, Don't Keep Your Distance, now through July 30th, amrep.org. The news has changed, right? It's aerosolized. It's in every crevice of your life. Amanda Ripley is a journalist, and even she, like millions of Americans, decided to turn off the news. There's a lot you would do differently if you were going to design news for human consumption. So what needs to change? Ripley has an answer, and it begins with giving people hope. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Overcast and a high near 82 today with a chance of showers and storms all day. It's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at carnegie.org slash greatimmigrants. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at cysimsfoundation.org. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR, NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Stephen Skeep. Hospitals across this country are facing a shortage of specialty doctors And for what it's worth, the American Medical Association extended those trend lines into the future and found that if nothing changes, this is just a forecast, but if nothing changes, the country would be short 77,000 specialists in years to come. Leslie McClurg from our member station KQED reports. Doctors race between patients at Queen of the Valley Medical Center in Napa County, north of San Francisco. It's 3 p.m. on a busy Monday in the ER. Dr. Naomi Marks is diagnosing a woman grimacing in pain. Um, So I got the results of your MRI. Marks tells the patient her pancreas is infected. The woman is nauseous and complaining that her belly and back are on fire. She can't sit up. So from the moment we spoke, I've been trying to reach a GI doctor at another hospital. A GI doc is a gastroenterologist or specialist focused on the digestive system. This hospital doesn't have one on staff or on call. So Marx is calling large facilities up and down the state looking for a hospital with a specialist and an open bed. There's no formal process for this. 
So I'll keep you updated. And we have more pain medications if you need. Mark says it's not uncommon for really sick patients to wait three or four, even five days for a transfer. That's hard on patients, says Dr. Andrew Fenton. He's the hospital's chief of staff. If you're a sick patient, you're trying to convalesce, and you're in the emergency department, the lights are on, and there's alarms beeping, it's just, it's not the correct place. And he says patients can deteriorate or even die waiting for the specialized care they need. For example, when a stone from a gallbladder infection must be removed, if a specialist isn't available to do it, the infection can become septic and lethal. The same is true if a patient has an aneurysm bleed and a neurosurgeon isn't available. All across the country, there are not enough specialty doctors, especially docs willing to work on-call shifts inside hospitals. We recently lost ENT. We used to have ear, nose, and throat call. They're gone now. We don't have ophthalmology. We don't have plastic surgery, oral maxillofacial surgery. Meanwhile, the ER is completely full. The hallway is lined with patients waiting on gurneys. One bleeds from a head injury, another has lacerations on his face. Doctors have even transformed a small office near the waiting room into an exam room to evaluate more patients. It looks a little bit like a MASH unit right now when you come into the ER. It's, uh, it's not pretty. Bottlenecks inside the ER are not new, and neither are staff shortages. But both have been exacerbated by the pandemic. It's hard. It will get nothing but worse. That's Dr. Donaldo Hernandez. He's the president of the California Medical Association. Even he can't get in to see a specialist. Hernandez needs to see a gastroenterologist for some preventive care. He called his health plan recently. The next available appointment is four months out. The system was broken before the pandemic. It's in shards now. The issue is hitting some specialties and some states harder than others, but... The problem is national. That's Dr. Jesse Ehrenfeld. He's the president of the American Medical Association. We're seeing, obviously, this, this play out in all sorts of ways across the country. He says the shortages start with medical school. The number of students in training is not rising fast enough to fill empty slots. In 1997, Congress capped the number of residency slots and froze funding. That's hardly changed since. We just don't have the physician workforce we need today, and we definitely don't have the physician workforce that we're going to need tomorrow if we don't take action now to solve this training problem. Pending legislation could improve the situation, but states will also likely have to get creative. For example, there's a city in Northern California desperately short of mental health specialists. So the county is partnering with a nonprofit to launch a local psychiatric residency program to fill the need. Back inside the emergency department in Napa County, hours have passed. ER doc Naomi Marks still doesn't have good news for the woman with pancreatitis. It could take her days to go someplace. Marks wishes there was more she could do. But she has to move on to her next patient, waiting on a gurney in the hallway. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in Napa County. NASCAR has struggled in recent years with declining TV audiences and attendance numbers. So the stock car racing organization tried something dramatically different yesterday to appeal to a different audience. For the first time in its 75-year history, NASCAR held its first-ever street course race in downtown Chicago. Reporter Michael Puente from member station WBEZ was there. Chicago isn't new to sports, but Sunday's NASCAR race through the heart of the city was truly unique. Attending her first NASCAR event, 
Ashley Jenkins had a front row seat as the green flag came down on Columbus Drive in Chicago's downtown loop. It's awesome. It's our first time being here. He's been watching it since he's a kid. I'm glad to be here and experience it. Jenkins is African-American and from the city's south side. Her teenage son, Aiden, is an avid race car fan. He's the type of person NASCAR hopes to attract by hosting events in urban areas instead of his traditionally southern and white fan base. I like how fast you can go. And it's, it's very interesting because there's more to it than going around in the Oval. Carson Epps, a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma, moved to Chicago three years ago. Epps, who is black, says having a street race in the heart of the city is a good way to get people into car racing. It got us here. <laughs> I've never been to a NASCAR event, it's the first one, so I think for early on fans, it got us here. NASCAR told drivers that 80% of the tens of thousands of attendees had never purchased a ticket to a NASCAR event before. Hendrick Motorsports pit crew member Jarvis Moorhead knows he's a role model for young African-American children. I never grew up thinking I was going to do this, so I was going to play football and all that, and I got into this and I loved it. This was also Jennifer Green's first car race, and she was ecstatic to see some of the best stock car drivers racing down Michigan Avenue. History. History for Chicago, and I'm here. And they were treated to a little history. New Zealand Shane Van Gisbergen took the checkered flag, the first driver in 60 years to win his Cup Series debut. For NPR News, I'm Michael Puente in Chicago. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. A national survey shows U.S. beekeepers lost about half their colonies last year. Scientists say a combination of parasites, pesticides, and climate change keep causing large die-offs. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says he will try a different path to attempt to eliminate billions of dollars in federal student loan debt now that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down his proposal. Here's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Biden's going to try another path, you know, through the Education Department and the Higher Education Act. But a lot of legal scholars thought that how Biden went about this originally was not going to hold up in court, especially with this conservative majority court, and it did not. Some are blaming Biden for what they see as overpromising and underdelivering. The White House hopes to blunt that by blaming Republicans and the court. Here was the president speaking about this decision. What I did I thought was appropriate and was able to be done and would get done. I didn't give Boris false hope, but the Republicans snatched away the hope that they were given, and it's real, real hope. The nation's high court struck down the president's plan by a vote of six to three. Thousands of union hotel employees in Southern California are on strike. They walked off the job yesterday demanding higher pay and expanded benefits. Kurt Peterson is co-president of Unite Here Local 11. They say their problem is they can't afford the wages. And we say you are making more money than you were before the pandemic. The strike is affecting more than 60 hotels. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell plans to sue the EPA over wood-burning stoves. Campbell is one of 10 attorneys general involved in the pending litigation. The group alleges the EPA allows the sale of the stoves even though they make air pollution worse. They also are critical of the EPA's program, which encourages people to exchange older wood-burning stoves, saying those exchanges haven't helped air quality. The EPA hasn't commented on the suit. There will be plenty of fireworks tomorrow for the 4th of July, and the loud noises they make can cause a stressful experience for dogs and their owners. WBR Stevie Chapman explains some ways to keep your pup calm. Experts say it's best to prepare your dog for fireworks as soon as possible. Terry Bright with Angel Animal Medical Center says you can start by setting up a comfortable space for your dog to hide. People will make a little closet fort for their dog and put a comfy bed in there. They'll hide treats in there. She adds it's important to know comforting your dogs with hugs and treats will not reinforce their fear. That fear is a reflex. It is not a learned behavior. The dog has no control over it. So whatever you find that comforts them, do that because you are not making their fear worse. Bright also suggests asking your veterinarian about medication to help calm your dog's anxiety. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Stevie Chapman. This is the first weekday for some changes on the T. The MBTA says it's increasing the number of trains throughout the day on the blue and orange lines. That means waiting times should be reduced. But it's a different story on the green line where there will be fewer trains running. And a heads up that later this month there will be no service on the B branch of the green line. That closure runs from July 17th through the 28th. It's 733. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Red Sox finished their sweep of the Blue Jays yesterday. They won 5-4 to four in Toronto. The Sox are off today. They'll be home tomorrow to play the Texas Rangers. Relief pitcher Kenley Jansen will be Boston's only representative in this year's All-Star Game. That game will be held next week in Seattle. Highs in the low 80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to rain and storms throughout the day. Upper 60s tonight and the showers may continue. Tomorrow, more rain and storms likely with highs in the 80, 80s. There's a chance skies may clear in time for the evening fireworks. It's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Another day, another series of bizarre events on Twitter. Elon Musk is capping the number of tweets users can see each day. Social media channels typically want to draw as many eyes as possible to their content. So why impose limits on users instead? Let's put that question to NPR tech reporter Bobby Allen, who has been covering Elon Musk, gets an email from him from time to time. Hey there, Bobby. Hey, Steve. Okay, so what is Elon Musk doing? 
Yeah, I mean, even for erratic Musk, this is something of a surprise. He says it's an attempt to crack down on companies that scrape Twitter for data. The idea is that if there's a cap on how many tweets users can read, companies won't be able to do mass data scraping. He originally said unverified accounts can read 600 tweets and verified accounts can read 6,000. After massive blowback, he raised the cap a few times. It now sits at 1,000 tweets for those without blue checks and 10,000 for those paying. Musk says this is all about artificial intelligence companies, right? They train AI models, as we know, by hoovering up tons of data from websites like Twitter. He says all the data scraping makes Twitter less stable for everyday users. It's hard to independently confirm whether this is really why Musk is doing this, but Steve, there is something we can say without question, and that is Musk is trying to make more money. Twitter has been burning cash for months, and by saying, if you want to read more tweets, you got to pay, Musk hopes more people will open their pocketbooks. Okay, well, you know, I think I'm like a lot of people. I have a love-hate relationship. I'm on Twitter a lot. I get a lot out of Twitter. But when I first found out I was being limited, I kind of wanted to say thank you for limiting my time <laughs> on Twitter. How are other, other users responding? Yeah, you hear a lot of that. Some Twitter diehards are upset for that very reason. Um, after hitting the threshold, you're now told your rate limit has been exceeded and you literally can't see tweets from that point on. But there are some other things to consider. For instance, you know, governments and emergency services that use Twitter to get the word out about severe weather or other dangerous situations, now they could be cut off from the public. That could be a real problem. And advertisers are going to be restricted and that will mean less revenue generated for Twitter and some context, this is happening at a time when advertising spending has cratered at Twitter. It's down nearly 60% from a year ago, so bad time to be messing with ad revenue. Um, the new limits were also, you know, so annoying to so many users that many once again said, I'm getting off Twitter, I'm going someplace else, maybe Blue Sky, maybe Mastodon. We've been hearing this a lot since Musk bought Twitter back in October. Uh, yeah, wasn't there just a wave of, of people urging everyone to jump ship just a few days ago? Yes, because Twitter imposed a new rule that forced you to have an account in order to read a tweet. And social media experts say this is a very bad idea. It makes Twitter less open, less public, and more like a walled garden. Not to mention, you know, if somebody sends you a really funny tweet and you want to see the joke, you can't unless you have a Twitter account. So that's kind of a bummer for people who don't have Twitter. But are these latest changes permanent? We don't know. We know that Musk says that the cap on tweets is temporary. The uh, you need an account to view a tweet thing may be permanent, but um, users are having fun with this. Steve, one wrote, just got rate limited at my 6,000th tweet and had to leave my office and spend time with my wife and kids for the first time in years. <laughs> Turns out they're really cool people. NPR's Bobby Allen, part of your unlimited diet of NPR news. Bobby, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. The grandmother of the teenager whose death has sparked days of unrest across France is appealing for calm. Her 17-year-old grandson, Nahel, was fatally shot by a police officer last week in the Paris suburb of Nanterre. His death ignited a wave of anger and anarchy across the country. Protesters consider the fatal shooting a symptom of what many, including the United Nations, regard as systemic racism and brutality of the French police. Rebecca Rossman reports from Nanterre. This has been the soundtrack of France for the past six nights, as a wave of anger and violence has rippled across the country in response to the death of a young man. It was here in this working-class suburb of Nanterre where it all started. On Tuesday, Nahel, a teenager of North African descent, was stopped by two police officers after running a red light. 
One of them shot him in the chest. He was pronounced dead less than an hour later. The entire incident was captured on video. On Saturday, hundreds gathered in the middle of a spacious boulevard facing the Ibn Badis Mosque in Nanterre for his funeral. The crowd grew louder and cars honked their horns as the white casket was placed into a hearse. He was a super happy kid, always smiling, says 19-year-old Shireen Ahmed, who, like many in Nanterre, tells me she knew Nahel personally. That's when her voice gets political. The police are supposed to be here to protect us, not kill us, she says, adding that while she doesn't want to generalize, she's never felt like she could trust them. Police were notably absent from the weekend's funeral service, despite the large crowds and even a few scuffles. Rokhaya Diallo is a French journalist and social activist who has spent decades calling out what she sees as a culture of impunity within France's police force. What I can tell is that many of them know that they could have been there. She tells me she's been speaking to a number of young people in the area. Many of them have already had so many negative interactions with the police, like being routinely checked for no reasons, being abused verbally or physically at a very young age. And that may be why so many minors have been at the center of recent unrest. According to France's interior ministry, the average age of those arrested is only 17 years old. Some are as young as 13. Nordine Iznasny is a community activist who has been living in Nanterre for decades. Like many, he condemns the violence, but says young people have a right to be heard. Le problème, est une génération. This is a generation that is telling the police, I'm sorry, but you cannot treat us this way, he says. We are saying, you cannot make us miserable because we will look you in the eyes and call you out. French President Emmanuel Macron said that the teenager's death was inexcusable and unexplainable. But his government has stopped short of acknowledging systematic racism and discrimination within the police force. In broader French society, these issues are often considered taboo subjects. Brokhaya Diallo says although she believes the officer who shot Nahel will be sentenced, not much will change beyond that. The system will not be questioned in itself. So it's very easy to make an example out of him, but the problem is not that person. The problem, she says, is that it happens all the time, and the government still isn't getting the message. For NPR News, I'm Rebecca Rossman in Nanterre. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, due to a Jim Crow era exemption in federal law, most farm workers in the U.S. do not have the right to overtime pay. What's being done to remedy that? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. You're with WBMR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we have an interview with Vice President Kamala Harris about recent Supreme Court decisions and the Biden administration's plans for its 2024 re-election campaign. Some spots of patchy fog this morning, and it'll be cloudy today with a good chance of rain and storms throughout the day. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s. Those fall to the upper 60s tonight, and more showers and storms are likely. Tomorrow, cloudy in 80s with yet more showers and storms possible. It's 66 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. And Gentle Giant Moving and Storage Company, offering professional local, long-distance office and piano moving with 23 locations nationwide. GentleGiant.com. A group of newspapers in Maine is expected to be sold soon. Masthead Maine plans to sell over 30 weekly and daily newspapers. Those in the industry tell the Boston Globe they're worried the papers could be sold to a hedge or capital fund. The owners of the papers has not said who they could be sold to. Needham-based Grillo's Pickles is suing a competitor for stealing its recipe. The company is suing Patriot Pickle over products it makes for Whole Foods. Grillo's tells the Boston Business Journal Patriot Pickle stole its recipe to make a cheaper product. Grillo's is asking for damages and an order forcing Patriot to stop making the pickles. Patriot has not commented. A house that just sold on Nantucket is the most expensive home ever sold in the state. The price tag? $38 million. The home has been on sale since July of last year, and it went well below the original asking price. When it hit the market, the owners were asking for $56 million. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Monday, the start of a holiday week, and it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Across the U.S., beekeepers lost about half of their colonies last year. That's according to a national survey. It's one of the highest death rates on record. Honeybees are crucial to our food supply. And across the country, beekeepers are having to work harder to keep crops pollinated. NPR's Allison Aubrey visited a blueberry farm for a lesson in how it works. If you're up for picking blueberries, Hal Bennett has loads of them. It's peak season at his farm in Frankfort, Delaware. I think we've got a good blueberry crop this year. You can tell by the size that they're going to have great flavor. He says honeybees are the key to a great tasting berry. We depend on honeybees for our existence. If it wasn't for bees, the blueberries would be much smaller and they would not have any flavor. Each spring, he brings in loads of honeybees. For three weeks, they fly around his many acres of blueberries, moving millions of tiny grains of pollen within and between flowers in order to pollinate the fruit. It's pretty amazing how much work that the bees have to do, and I don't think a lot of people realize it. An acre of blueberries has two million flowers, and each flower has to be visited six to eight times by a honeybee in order to be fully pollinated. He breaks open a berry to inspect the seeds. Probably 15 to 20 at least, so that tells me that that's a great blueberry. And you want to have at least 15 seeds inside that blueberry fruit, and that tells you that that flower was adequately pollinated in the spring. He offers me a taste. I would take that one right there. This variety is called blue crop. I like that balance between the acidity and the sugar. Mmm, that one is perfect. Like a little tart, but also super sweet. Tastes like great blueberries. You can't beat anything you get fresh off the plant. 
Given the vital service that bees provide, there's been alarm in recent years about the rate at which bee colonies have been dying off. And a new survey that tracks colony deaths shows many beekeepers are still struggling. Dan Arell of Auburn University is one of the researchers. Over the entire year, beekeepers lost 48.2% of their colonies. He says bees still face many challenges. This is the second highest death rate since 2010. This is absolutely a concern. We haven't seen a massive spike, but what our survey is showing is that we're not seeing the kind of improvement that we'd like to see. The bees that farmer Hale Bennett uses for pollination are brought in each spring by a commercial beekeeper, and these beekeepers are having to work harder to protect their bees. One strategy is to try to fend off parasites like the varroa mite. Here's research scientist and beekeeper Jeff Pettis. So certainly a a major concern for bees is the varroa mite. It's a very small parasite that feeds on bees and makes it difficult for them to stay healthy in the summer. But in particular, in the winter, it shortens their lifespan. Varroa is an invasive species that originated in Asia. And Pettis says he uses an organic acid called formic acid to treat against them, which can help. It is possible to treat varroa. The organic acids are certainly effective, but they do take time and money. Other challenges bees face are beyond the control of any one beekeeper. Pettis says they include pesticides, a loss of food sources such as wildflowers. And then you layer on top of that climate change, the big, broad issues of climate change, and bees are really struggling to survive. For now, blueberry farmer Hale Bennett says he's trying to be a good steward of the land. He invited a hobbyist beekeeper to set up on his farm so people can better understand this connection. It's important for people to understand that and remember where their food comes from. And, you know, we depend on honeybees for our existence. Bottom line, he says, no bees, no berries. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. This is NPR News. It's a Monday on WVUR. Coming up at 8.15, we visit a New Hampshire center that cares for and releases rehabilitated bears into the wild. It's 7.49. The news has changed, right? It's aerosolized. It's in every crevice of your life. Amanda Ripley is a journalist, and even she, like millions of Americans, decided to turn off the news. There's a lot you would do differently if you were going to design news for human consumption. So what needs to change? Ripley has an answer, and it begins with giving people hope. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. U.S. officials are recommending that Americans reconsider traveling to China over fears of wrongful detentions. Ten states, including Massachusetts, plan to sue the Environmental Protection Agency, saying it failed to review emissions on residential wood-burning stoves that could worsen pollution. And thousands of hotel workers in Southern California are on strike and demanding better pay to keep up with the housing market there. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. 
Showers and storms possible all day today, otherwise cloudy and in the low 80s. The rain may continue tonight as we dip into the 60s. Tomorrow back to the 80s with more showers and storms likely during the day. It's 66 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Let's catch up on a presidential race in Guatemala. This is an often troubled country, the source of some of the migrants who head to the United States from Latin America. Based on what we know, the first round of the election ended with a center-left candidate making a surprise showing to get into the top two, a runoff. Maria Martin reports from Guatemala. No one had seen this coming. Not the pollsters, nor the media, nor even his own supporters in the small reformist anti-corruption party called Semilla, SEED, which called on people to vote differently. Sixty-four-year-old Semilla standard bearer Bernardo Arevalo, the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president, won 12 percent of the vote last Sunday, just a few points behind leading candidate Sandra Torres, who's supported by business and the ruling class. Arevalo says his unexpected second-place finish and the high number of blank and spoiled ballots indicated an overwhelming popular rejection of Guatemala's corrupt status quo. Una población que está cansada de un sistema político. People are tired, he says, of a political system that only generates more poverty, more deterioration, and less democracy. Semilla's supporters were thought to be largely limited to urban Guatemala City, and the party had limited financial resources, says political analyst Juan Luis Font. They were driving their own cars. They didn't have the support of these big financial Guatemalan groups, and they just got it. Arevalo was able to fly under the radar since he wasn't seen as a threat to the establishment in an election that saw four candidates disqualified. Another plus, say analysts, was that he stuck to his anti-corruption message. Es que vamos a asesorarnos de la gente que más conoce cómo funciona la corrupción. Arevalo says he'll bring back anti-corruption judges and prosecutors in exile as advisors to help him develop his strategy. Arevalo's challenge in the next seven weeks before the runoff vote is to broaden his party's support outside urban areas, to reach out to the large number of voters who turned in spoiled ballots, and to get past the mushrooming negative campaigns on social media. Numerous posts like these paint Arevalo as a communist and a perpetrator of electoral fraud. Meanwhile, Arevalo's opponent, Sandra Torres, says he'd legalize abortion and gay marriage and destroy the country's social fabric. Don't let him mess with Guatemalan children and families. But the negative campaigns appear to be working. Hairdresser Estela Mendes says everyone at her salon says she should be afraid of Arevalo. Now she's confused. Meanwhile, there's a court challenge underway that may stop his candidacy. While the OAS and the EU are calling on Guatemala's government to respect the popular will. For NPR News, I'm Maria Martin. 
We have an update on one of the most influential film directors of the 20th century, Orson Welles. Of course, that is Citizen Kane, the 1941 classic, his best-known film. Wells followed it up with another potential classic, The Magnificent Ambersons. The studio, RKO, didn't think so. They recut it without his approval. Wells later said, they destroyed Ambersons and it destroyed me. But there's new hope. NPR's Netta Ulibi reports that an Orson Welles superfan is using animation to conjure up the director's lost vision. The Magnificent Ambersons is based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. The Magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Orson Welles wanted to tell a story about small-town Americans buffeted by unsettling new technology and economic decline through the fortunes of the town's richest family. There it is! The Amberson Mansion. The pride of the town. Well, well. $60,000 for the woodwork alone. Hot and cold running water? Wells was hot from Citizen Kane. In 1941, he was given a princely budget and built an entire mansion with movable walls for filming. But costs kept mounting, and the studio hated the film's dark take on American aristocracy. This was the last walk home he was ever to take up National Avenue to Amberson Edition, the big old house at the foot of Amberson Boulevard. So the studio took his 131-minute version of The Magnificent Ambersons. They cut it down to 88 minutes. Ray Kelly runs an Orson Welles fan site called Wellsnet. They took out the ending, which was rather bleak, and replaced it with a very Hollywood happy ending that doesn't seem to fit the mood of the film. How is Georgie? He's going to be all right. All in all, only 13 scenes out of more than 70 were left untouched, Kelly says. And in spite of all the re-editing and the fake happy ending, The Magnificent Ambersons was still a massive flop. The studio, RKO, burned its silver nitrate negatives to salvage the silver and to make space to store other movies. So Wells's version has been lost to history. Not so fast. Here's forensic filmmaker Brian Rose. Fortunately, the film is remarkably well-documented for a film that was so badly altered. Rose had access to photographs, to the original storyboards, the original title cards, and a detailed description of what was shown scene by scene to the first test audiences. And he had new technology. So basically in a 3D environment, I rebuilt all the sets from diagrams and photographs. And he used black and white animation to recreate lost scenes. I won't go home now, Harry. Drive to the city hospital. Yes, sir. Voice actors speak while the animated images create a sense of what was lost. Rose is the first to say the animation's pretty simple, intended to evoke the pencil and charcoal storyboards they're drawn from. They sort of feel like there's a haze over them, and I wanted to try to recapture that. There is also a bit of a haze over this project when it comes to the intellectual property rights and how legal it is to be animating this fan version of The Magnificent Ambersons. The thought was to beg forgiveness later. Brian Rose hopes he can eventually legally share his version of The Magnificent Ambersons with other Orson Welles fanatics. Later this month, it'll get screened as part of a series at the Free Library Philadelphia, and he'd love for it to be packaged as part of a Criterion Collection edition. Rose is not expecting to make any money from a version of this project that's more scholarly than commercial. It's a passion project. In the era of TikTok, it's an homage to a wounded film. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. 
The Sumner Tunnel from East Boston to downtown will close for the summer on Wednesday. Right now at WBUR.org, get advice on how to get around the closure, which is going to cause a lot of traffic headaches. Low 80s and overcast today with a good chance of rain and storms all day and into the evening. It falls into the 60s tonight. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, a CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNova Scientific, where concept becomes cure. I'm Radio Boston executive producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Five Palestinians are dead after Israel deployed hundreds of troops and used drones to target a militant stronghold in the West Bank. It's Monday, July 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Vice President Kamala Harris weighs in on recent Supreme Court decisions. The court took rights from the people of America. Congress can put those rights back in place. We cannot through executive action. Plus, we look at why the military has a suicide rate higher than the national average. Also this hour. You know, you can't keep them, you don't want to keep them, but also you've formed some sort of relationship and This year, there's so many of them that it's a lot of relationships to say goodbye to. A New Hampshire Bear Center says a bittersweet goodbye to more than 100 rescued and rehabilitated animals. Cloudy in 80s today with rain and storms possible. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Police in Baltimore are still searching for suspects after a mass shooting in the city. Scott Massioni of member station WYPR reports two people were killed and 28 others were injured after at least two shooters opened fire during a holiday block party. The incident is the ninth mass shooting in Baltimore this year. Acting Police Commissioner Richard Worley is asking for the public's help in finding the shooters. We're looking for any kind of video, and if anyone has any ring cameras, any other cameras, any other video that you see that could help us, please, please send it to us so we can find these individuals. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott says the shooting's a reminder why the city needs to continue to focus on keeping illegal guns off the street. The city's sending trauma resources into neighborhoods impacted by the shooting. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni in Baltimore. The Israeli military is currently conducting a large offensive in the occupied West Bank. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports Palestinian officials say at least seven Palestinians have been killed and dozens of others wounded. This is one of the most intense Israeli operations in the West Bank in terms of firepower from the air and ground in more than a decade. Israel is calling it an extensive counterterrorism effort in the Janine refugee camp, a center of Palestinian militant activity. Drone strikes targeted what Israel called the camp's operational command center for militants. Hundreds of Israeli ground troops have been deployed in the operation. Israel has carried out military raids in the area for more than a year amid waves of Palestinian attacks. But a recent spike in violence, including a deadly shooting against Israeli settlers in the West Bank, has led to calls from far-right political leaders to launch a major military offensive. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Jerusalem. 
Officials in Ukraine say Russia launched a drone attack on several regions of the country today. They say most of the Iranian-made drones were detected and shot down. Thousands of hotel employees in Southern California walked off the job yesterday. Zoe Matthew with member station KCRW reports the workers are demanding higher pay and expanded benefits. Bellhops, housekeepers, cooks, and other hotel employees in L.A. and Orange County hit the picket lines after contracts expired with dozens of major hotels. The Hotel Workers Union Unite Here Local 11 says the strike could last days, potentially impacting business during the busy 4th of July holiday. Workers are pushing for wages that keep up with inflation and skyrocketing housing costs in the region. That's Zoe Matthew with member station KCRW reporting. The strike is affecting more than 60 hotels, including properties owned by Marriott and Hilton. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading mixed at this hour. This is NPR News. Another bus carrying migrants has arrived in Los Angeles from a Texas border city. The migrants were taken to a local church where they were given water, food, clothing, and medical checkups. This is the second such transport in recent weeks that many congressional Democrats have called a political stunt. A new report on how voters cast their ballots in last year's midterm election shows a continuing shift towards voting by mail since the start of the pandemic. NPR's Hansi Lowong reports on the findings from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Close to a third of voters in last year's midterm elections cast their ballots by mail. That's an increase compared to the quarter of mail-in voters in the 2018 midterms. The latest stats are from the U.S. Election Assistance Commission's Nationwide Election Administration and Voting Survey. The results also show that just under half of voters in last year's midterm elections cast their ballots the more traditional way, in person on the last day of voting. Others chose to vote at their polling sites before that Tuesday in early November. The survey found that less than a quarter of voters cast ballots early and in person, which is about the same share as in 2018. Hansi Wong, NPR News. Harrison Ford's final Indiana Jones took the top spot at the box office this weekend. The film pulled in an estimated $60 million in its debut in North America. Worldwide, the movie took in more than double that amount. Stocks across Asia closed higher today, with markets in Japan and China posting gains. I'm Windsor Johnston, and you're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston City Councilor Kendra Laura will face charges after crashing her car into a home in Jamaica Plain. Her young son was in the car on Friday. He had to get stitches. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, public records show Laura has a history of driving infractions. Laura's office says she was trying to avoid another car when she veered off the road and crashed into a house on Center Street. A police report indicates that Laura was driving with a revoked license in a car that was unregistered and uninsured. It also had an expired inspection sticker. Laura's Massachusetts driving record shows multiple violations, including driving a vehicle without registration in 2010. Laura also failed to appear for court in Connecticut after allegedly running a traffic sign in 2014. A spokesperson for Laura's office calls Friday's crash a scary situation and says she's thankful for the first responders and bystanders who came to her aid. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. 
Starting today, Massachusetts residents can apply for a driver's license regardless of immigration status. Applicants only need to provide proof of identity and state residency to be eligible and then pass a driving test. The new law went into effect this month. The law passed last year over the veto of then-Governor Charlie Baker. Voters then upheld the law in November. Travel in and out of Logan Airport is off to a good start this morning. The website FlightAware reports 31 flights in and out of Boston are delayed and just seven are canceled. It's expected to be busy at the airport this week. AAA estimates nationwide 4 million Americans will fly for the holiday. Mary McGuire with AAA Northeast says many people are ready to make trips this summer following several years of pandemic restrictions. There's a lot of pent-up travel demand left over from COVID. So many people who are very careful about flying in the past are now feeling more free to do so, given the fact that mask mandates have been lifted and COVID numbers are down, even though COVID is still with us. McGuire says the demand is causing a spike in airfare prices. She estimates passengers are paying between 40 to 50 percent more for flights this year compared to last year. People from Massachusetts and other states can now get medical marijuana at New Hampshire dispensaries. Patients must have a valid medical marijuana card from another state in order to use the dispensaries. The state health department announced the change last week. It's 8.08. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. The Red Sox topped the Blue Jays 5-4 to four yesterday in Toronto. The Sox have now won three in a row. They're off today. They'll be home tomorrow to play the Texas Rangers. Cloudy with a chance for showers and storms throughout the day today. It'll be in the 80s. More rain possible overnight. Temperatures will be in the 60s. Rain tomorrow, but it should clear out by the evening in time for fireworks. Back to the 80s. Right now it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C., and our Berlin correspondent Rob Schmitz is joining us this holiday week. Rob, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Vice President Kamala Harris says recent Supreme Court decisions indicate that there's a, quote, national movement afoot to attack hard-won and hard-fought freedoms, end quote. It's a message she delivered in New Orleans at the Essence Festival of Culture last week. Our co-host, Michelle Martin, got a chance to speak to some festival-goers before sitting down with the vice president. Yeah, so we went to one of the biggest halls at the convention center, and anywhere you turned, people were open and excited, and I realized it's something they've come to expect at the Essence Fest, where people gather from all over the country to meet up with friends, to make new friends, and really build community. And on the day that we were there, jazz was playing as seats started to fill up. One of the first people we met was Jamae Jackson. She told us she works in tech, she lives in Brooklyn, New York, and frankly, she exudes self-confidence with golden dreadlocks and bright pink dress. And she told me she identifies with Kamala Harris because like her, she went to an historically black college or university. And she's interested in moving people forward through activism and politics. 
It's been an interesting transition, though, to see how the um, the Biden-Harris administration has covered, especially for BIPOC rights. I'm really interested in today's conversation, specifically with the canceling of affirmative action and what that's going to look like, not just for people in the HBCU environment, but all across in colleges and universities. Then also, we've had a lot of attacks. First of all, this is like one of the worst Pride Months on record as far as like attacks against the LGBTQIA plus community. So I'm really interested to see what her thoughts are and how we can continue to cultivate and also support marginalized voices. Vanessa Rice, who also is from New York, got our attention with some eye-popping bling, signifying her membership in Alpha Kappa Alpha, the same sorority as the vice president. Now, Vanessa Rice told us that she is independent, but she leans conservative and says she supports the vice president. But she believes that the Biden-Harris administration has just not done enough for the people who put them into office. I feel like for the Black community, until that voting rights like certain key positions that we we need is done. I'll tell you what disappointed me. When the Asians were being attacked in the country, there was um, a swift policy move to protect them, swift. And when it comes to our issues, it's not swift. It's always something. And I understand the politics around it, but it just seems like other groups' matters get handled faster than ours. But Dwayne and Camille Hodges told us that they like what they've been seeing from the vice president, and they particularly like the fact that they've been seeing the vice president. They host a show in Davenport, Iowa called Wake Up and Praise. I like her because I feel like she's getting out there. She's not sitting behind a desk. She's getting out in the communities and, you know, finding out what's going on and meeting people and talking to them. I believe she's starting to touch base with a lot of different issues, and she addresses the issues. She's not shying away and not talking. About them. Issues like student loan relief, which is top of mind to Maya Colvin from Houston. She is a photographer who specializes in senior class portraits. She also has a doctorate in educational leadership. I've, I have three degrees. I come from a home where I did not have 500K. I did not have parents paying for my education. So we took out these loans, right, um, with the idea that having a college degree would give us a better life. And we did not have like credit counseling. We didn't have any of those things to say, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't take out the max amount, maybe just enough for classes or, you know, enough for books. And so now I'm looking at like, where do I go as someone with a doctorate? I have the highest level of education in the United States. How is the how is the United States now going to help me back? Well, I got a chance to put some of these issues raised by these voters to the vice president after her panel, which was supposed to focus on reproductive rights and maternal mortality. But the latest Supreme Court decisions on affirmative action, student loan debt, and LGBTQ rights were clearly top of mind for everyone. Madam Vice President, thank you so much for uh, inviting us to speak with you here at thank Essence you, Fest. Thank you, It's good to be with you. Thank you. It seemed like you were having a good time. Yeah, I— um, what, what does an event like this mean to you or, or do for you? It, well, it's very uplifting, and it's a convening. It's coming together under one roof— um, for a variety of reasons that are about fellowship, about sisterhood, about um, having joyful moments, having reflective moments, having moments where we confront the biggest issues of the day and some of them being the most challenging issues. It, and it's all of that. It's, it's really no false choices. It's, it's all of those things in one place at one time. Do you see a through line of all the decisions that have recently come from the Supreme Court? I, they, there is a bit of a through line, indeed, uh, which is that there, it is about an attack on foundational freedoms and on the access to opportunity. 
a lot of your meetings with people have been in the context of the Dobbs decision, and a lot of them have been focused around the issue of reproductive rights. Has there been a story that's really touched you or stood out to you over the course of the year that you've been traveling and having meetings about this? You know, the challenge on this subject is that the stories are so difficult to imagine and speak about and for people to hear. People don't want to hear these stories because they don't want to think about these things. But the stories are women having miscarriages in toilets. The stories are women who are in the process of a miscarriage who are being denied care at an emergency room and going back to the emergency room and being denied again, and only the third time when she has sepsis being given care. These stories are the woman and her husband who have prayed to, to, to get pregnant, and she gets pregnant, and at 18 weeks in her pregnancy, she is diagnosed as having fatal fetal situation and then is basically aware that either she goes through nine months or she has a procedure, knowing that the outcome of this pregnancy is, is pretty much has been determined. And she can't get care in the place where she lives, so she has to get on a plane go through TSA, get on a plane full of strangers to go from where she lives in the South to Washington State to get care. These stories are horrendous. Given that the range of action possible for the administration is, is fairly narrow in this area, one could make the argument that you've done, the administration has done what it can do through administrative, through executive action, okay? And that also speaks to the question of the student loan debt issue, right? The, the, as we are speaking today, the president has spoken about this back in Washington, and he's laid out what steps that the administration is prepared to take. But the range of things that you can do is fairly narrow. Given all that, what's your message? Well, the message is, it's not a slogan. The message is first on an issue like student loan debt to first speak to the issue itself and the importance of understanding the issue, which is so many of our young people in particular are experiencing debt that is at a proportion that it is weighing them down to the extent that they are wondering if they can ever have a family, if they can ever buy a home. We are looking at a, a policy that we believe in that if implemented, if the court hadn't acted as it did, would have meant that 90% of the recipients of, of student loan debt relief make under $75,000 a year and are barely able to make it through the month with the other bills that they have. Um, when we And so we are going to be creative in the way that we can provide some relief to this population that we have front of mind on this issue, on the issue of, of, of reproductive care and access to reproductive care through not only the Department of Justice where litigation is happening, where it is appropriate, through Health and Human Services, what we are doing to make clear that no one should be denied access to emergency care. There is a law in that regard and doing what we need to do to enforce that law. 
doing what we can and need to do to, to inform people of their privacy rights on an issue like abortion. Um, so there is work that we can do. But ultimately, for a lot of these issues, look, we have three branches of government. The court took rights from the people of America. Congress can put those rights back in place. We cannot through executive action. Congress can. So part of the point, including when I was talking on the stage here in New Orleans, is reminding people of the power of their vote to elect people into the United States Congress who care about the importance of putting back in place in law the protections of Roe v. Wade. So, so, so your job in part is to tell people you need to vote for Democrats because Democrats will restore these rights, defend these rights, and will expand the range of options uh, that are available to people in, in policy. That's basically sort of the message. So here's my question Well, no, but, but let me just say that it's because Democrats are the ones standing for these exactly. rights. I get <laughs> so it. I, I'm saying, I, if, you Republicans want, if you are care about these rights, right. then these are the folks who are going to deliver them. The question I have for you, Madam Vice President, is, is that enough for you, for you as a sort of a political actor, to establish yourself in the minds of the American people as a credible successor, if need be, to President Biden? Right now, we are focused on doing everything we can, and we will continue to focus on doing everything we can to deliver for the American people, including we are running for re-election. The president is running for re-election as president. I am running for re-election with him as vice president. And that is my focus. I'm traveling around the country to make sure that people know not only what they have received because they stood in line for hours during the height of a pandemic in 2020 demanding these things, but also what is yet to come. And that includes what we will do to continue to fight to make sure that people's freedoms and rights are protected, and we will do the work of continuing to deliver. That's Vice President Kamala Harris speaking with our co-host, Michelle Martin. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Monday with WBOR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, critics say little has been done to address high suicide rates among U.S. military members, despite many studies detailing the problem. It's 820. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. Overcast and a high near 82 today. There's a chance of showers and storms all day, and those may bring gusty winds and heavy rain. Tonight, the storms and rain may continue while it falls to a low of 68. Tomorrow, a high near 80 and a good chance of another stormy, rainy day, although things might clear up in time for evening, July 4th festival. It's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. 
From BritBox, with the latest season of Father Brown, Season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day, and also those who listen. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is the time of year when young black bears leave their mothers. For many orphaned New England bears, that coming-of-age ritual happens at the Killam Bear Center in Lyme, New Hampshire. This year, it's saying goodbye to 137 black bears. As Nancy Cohen reports, it's a bittersweet process. But first, but first. A group of wildlife rehabilitators and biologists are carefully placing black bears belly down on the floor of an open barn. They've been knocked out with an anesthetic so they can be moved, tagged, and weighed. 143. 143 pounds. That's how much Dutch weighs. Just over a year ago, this male black bear from Tolland, Massachusetts, arrived small enough to sit in a shoebox, weighing a little more than five pounds. These are the 11-acre guys, so they're... They're chunky. They've been here the longest. Dutch was brought here last April after he was found without his mother in a residential neighborhood. Debbie Killam, who helps run the Bear Center, is orchestrating the transfer of these animals from an 11-acre wooded enclosure where they've been raised to, later in the day, protected public land. Time to go be a bear. They're going to go in the first, first cages. While veterinarian and state wildlife experts monitor these bears, Debbie's nephew, Ethan Killam, is up in the woods trying to get a few more to follow him. Only Ethan can do that, says Debbie. Because the bears will not trust us. The bears only really know Ethan. This exclusive relationship is at the heart of the center's approach to rehabilitation. It was developed by Ben Killam, Ethan's uncle, and Debbie's husband, who raised his first bear cubs about 30 years ago. The idea is one person cares for them, feeding them when they're young, and later leading them into a fenced woods where the cubs teach themselves how to find food, using big paws and a keen sense of smell. Ethan's presence in the woods is kind of like a surrogate mom, says Ben Killam. We're able to emulate the mother's position by being that protective umbrella. He claims the cubs' relationship with Ethan won't make them more likely to approach humans when they're released because they see bears and humans as individuals. This year, Ethan raised a bumper crop of bears, 105 from New Hampshire, 28 from Vermont, two from Connecticut, and two from Massachusetts. They had so many cubs this year, many late arrivals were raised in barns instead of the enclosed woods. Ben Killam says one reason the center raised so many is because natural food, acorns and beech nuts, were scarce, something he says that's happening more frequently. They're skinny and they're starving and they show up in somebody's yard because that's where the food is. Food that bears can poach, like birdseed in feeders, chickens outside of electric fences, and garbage that's not secured. That can lead to human-bear conflicts and more orphan cubs who end up here. We consider this a big success. Forrest Hammond, retired biologist, 
ecologist with Vermont Department of Fish and Wildlife, is helping out today. He brought Ben Killam his first cubs three decades ago. We think he's got one of the most successful programs probably in the world with bears. It actually gives a way of those orphaned bears being able to survive and go back to the wild with a very small chance of being a problem later. Yeah, he's ready. Yep. Now it's time to return to the wild. Dutch and two other bears are waking up. They're loaded into a kind of bear train. Three cages, each holding one bear, pulled on a trailer behind a truck that's heading to Vermont. Each one is sitting up. That's a sight going down the road. There's no big, tearful goodbyes for Dutch, even from Ethan Killam, who raised the cub since he was just a few months old. Oh, he was just a uh, easygoing, lovable, uh, gentle, soft-spoken. It's always uh, bittersweet. You know, you can't keep them, you don't want to keep them, but also you've formed some sort of relationship. And this year, there's so many of them that it's a lot of relationships to say goodbye to in a short amount of time. It's bumpy, but I think they'll be okay. That's Vermont Wildlife Specialist Tony Smith driving Dutch and two other bears down an old logging road in a 10,000-acre state wildlife management area about an hour from the Killam Bear Center. It has open fields with lots of greens to eat, mixed forests with fragrant fir trees, and a few discreet brambly breaks in the forest cut by state workers, says Smith. You can see all the blackberries there, and then there's elderberries, just a lot of berries that you see growing in these little teeny openings that the bears like. Smith says a place like this gives the bears their best shot away from people, except of course during the bear hunting season, which starts in September. He chooses a place to release each bear on its own, a distance from each other on the edge of the woods. Now it's Dutch's turn. There's a nice shaded spot, so I, I think we'll try to open this door. He'll be able to turn around and go this way. Once the cage opens, Dutch leans out, panting a bit, taking his time to drop to the ground. He looks over his shoulder back at us, maybe a little unsure, before heading just into the woods. Often the bears will take a nap in the shade before exploring their new home. Ben Killam says they meet other bears, wild ones, and make friends and learn from them. It'll be a few years before they mate. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the largest GOP organization representing LGBTQ Republicans is blasting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for a campaign ad that it calls homophobic. It's 829. Use the WBOR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBOR app in your app store today.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The air quality has improved in large sections of the U.S. The upper Midwest, the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, and parts of the South were under air quality alerts for much of last week because of smoke and haze from wildfires in Canada. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, those fires continue burning. There are more than 500 active wildfires burning across Canada, mainly in British Columbia, Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec. Some of them so out of control, authorities say they have no choice but to leave them burning, especially huge fires in remote areas. At least 10 countries, including the U.S., have sent firefighters to Canada. Daniel Paracas, a fire scientist with the Canadian Forest Service, says the effects of climate change are here now, adding that wildfires and the toxic smoke they generate will become more frequent. For NPR News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk in Toronto. Extreme heat will be an issue today from northern Florida to southeast Virginia. The National Weather Service has issued heat advisories along the roughly 600-mile stretch. Afternoon temperatures are expected to be in the 90s. Authorities in Maryland say they're looking for suspects following yesterday's early morning shooting in Baltimore. Two people were killed, 28 others were wounded. The gunfire erupted at a block party in the south of the city. This is NPR News from Washington. Elon Musk says he's limiting the number of messages users can view on Twitter each day. As NPR's Bobby Allen reports, Musk says it's a move to crack down on companies scraping Twitter for data. The idea is that if there's a cap on how many tweets users can read, companies won't be able to do mass data scraping. He originally said unverified accounts can read 600 tweets and verified accounts can read 6,000. After massive blowback, he raised the cap a few times. It now sits at 1,000 tweets for those without blue checks and 10,000 for those paying. Twitter requires users to have an account to view a tweet. A special tribunal is opening today in The Hague, where prosecutors will be seeking to hold Russia and its president, Vladimir Putin, legally accountable for Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Prosecutors are working closely with investigators from the International Criminal Court. That tribunal is backed by Ukraine, the U.S., and the European Union. DDA Reinders is the EU's commissioner in charge. We cannot tolerate the gross violation of the prohibition of the use of force, one of the fundamental rules of the international rule-based order and a bedrock principle of the UN Charter. The U.S. is not a member of the ICC, but it supports the court's work. Russia's invasion is in its 17th month. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. We are just 48 hours away from the start of a major traffic headache in Boston. The Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and downtown will shut down on Wednesday. It's going to stay closed until August 31st. And as WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka reports, it's expected to cause backups in all different directions. The worst impact will be on those coming from the North Shore or East Boston, but other parts of the region won't be exempt. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says commuters should opt for the subway, commuter rail, or ferry service. We don't want people to be on the roadway if they don't have to, and I can't stress that enough, is that if you drive through that region, if you're driving near Sumner Tunnel on a regular basis and you try to do it after July 5th, you will be delayed. Gulliver says there will be reduced tolls, free Blue Line service, and additional ferry and Silver Line service. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is set to sue the EPA. Campbell and nine other state attorneys general say the agency is violating law by allowing the sale of wood-burning stoves. The group says EPA stove pollution standards are unclear. They also allege enforcement is ineffective. The EPA declined to comment on the suit. Colleges in Massachusetts are working to keep students in school once they start. 75% of students at four-year public colleges here complete school. That's higher than the national average, but data obtained by the Boston Globe show the Massachusetts rate has dipped in the past decade. So colleges are creating programs aimed at dissuading students from leaving by keeping them engaged in classes and reaching out if they fail to register for the next semester. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. BostonChildrens.org slash answers. Make it three wins in a row for the Red Sox. They beat the Blue Jays 5-4 to four yesterday in Toronto. The Sox have today off. They'll host the Texas Rangers tomorrow. Relief pitcher Kenley Jansen will represent the Sox at this year's All-Star Game. That'll be held next week in Seattle. Highs in the low 80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to rain and storms throughout the day. Upper 60s tonight and the showers may continue. Tomorrow, more rain and storms likely with highs in the 80s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Israel launched a military campaign in a small area of the occupied West Bank. Aircraft and troops have hit the Janin refugee camp. It's a hub of Palestinian militant activity and also the home of well over 10,000 people who live on a crowded patch of land. Officials say at least eight Palestinians have been killed in Janine and dozens wounded. NPR's Daniel Estrin is covering this story. Hey there, Daniel. Good morning, Steve. What exactly is the Israeli military doing? It's a combination of lethal airstrikes and ground troops And this is a sort of a firepower that we've not seen since the days of the second Palestinian uprising more than a decade ago. It started with Israeli drone fire, striking, uh, killing three Palestinians, and then hundreds of ground troops entered the Junin refugee camp. And this has been an ongoing campaign now for more than 12 hours. We've seen bulldozers tear up a street, crumpling cars. So these are unprecedented things that we haven't seen in more than a decade. There are troops now going door to door, trying to collect weapons. There's been exchanges of gunfire. And Israel says its objective is to go after the West Bank's number one hub of Palestinian militant activity. Uh, There has been a spike in violence in recent weeks. Well, what are some of the events that have led up to this? 
Steve, we've seen more than a year of almost nightly Israeli military raids in the West Bank. Uh, Israel says it's responding to a spate of deadly Palestinian attacks on Israelis. Uh, in this period, we've seen the highest death toll of both Palestinians and Israelis in this area in years. Civilians also have been affected. And we see, you know, you, you take the sort of bird's eye view on the leadership level, the Western-backed Palestinian security forces have become ineffective in many areas, and so militants are filling the vacuum. They're growing stronger. They are increasing their use of roadside bombs, even rudimentary rockets. Soldiers uh, on the Israeli side have been wounded. Settlers, Israeli civilians have been killed. So these are new developments, and Israel's uh, far right has unprecedented power in Israel, and they are pressuring now. Uh, there's a lot of public pressure to go after militants in the West Bank to intensify a campaign. And so we are seeing an intensified campaign now. Well, what is the Israeli military saying their plans are? At the moment, the Israeli military is saying that this is very pinpointed. The army has told me this could last from hours to even days. And Israel's message, we heard it today from the foreign minister, Eli Cohen. Uh, let's hear him. Our goal is to focus in, uh, in Jenin. And our goal is to focus only on the terrorists themselves. So the message is this is something very focused at this point. It's not, you know, I would say a major offensive like we saw about 20 years ago, 10, 15 years ago in the occupied West Bank. This is not a war, but uh, it could escalate if militants in Gaza, Lebanon, Syria start firing rockets. That could open a multi-front campaign. If Palestinian civilians are killed, that could also intensify the violence. And you can't ignore, Steve, that uh, the Israeli government now is made up by hawkish members pressuring to take more strident action against Palestinian militants. Um, and so this is a very slippery slope, and, and uh, it could escalate from here. Complicated situation, and NPR's Daniel Estrin is there. Daniel, thanks as always for your insights. You're welcome. The U.S. military is awash in studies detailing the risk of suicide among troops, with more studies on the way. But their findings are often not put into practice. WHRO's Steve Walsh reports. In a recent report, the Navy detailed the last days of three sailors who died by suicide a year ago in April on board the USS George Washington. John Sander and Mary Graff, the parents of seaman recruit Xavier Mitchell Sander, received a text from him minutes before he died. He said... He was sorry. He tried his hardest, but he can't do it anymore. And he didn't want us to be disappointed, but he just couldn't do it anymore. No one should have to live this way. The young sailor was on his first tour. His ship was torn apart while it underwent maintenance. His supervisors knew he was violating policy by driving eight hours to see his parents in Maryland returning to the ship heavily sleep-deprived, which may have contributed to his death. They knew he was having trouble with ship life and did nothing about it. They knew he was sleeping in his car and did nothing about it. So I feel the command is at fault. The Navy failed him and us as a family. The latest report calls for several changes in the Navy's suicide policy. The family is afraid that the recommendations will go nowhere. A valid fear, says David Rudd, psychology professor with the University of Memphis. 
Rudd has been conducting multiple studies on suicide for the military for a decade. The problem isn't recommendations. I mean, the, the reality is we know what to do. It's not about knowing what to do. It's actually doing it. And implementing it in a military culture is arguably the biggest challenge. He points to a 2010 Defense Department study about suicide that has many of the same recommendations as a similar study that came out this year. Ideas like leaders need to better understand the problem and there needs to be easier access to mental health care. A divisional commander, they're only going to be in charge for a couple of years before they move on to another job. So you just have people moving in and out so often, you can't get continuity about anything, and particularly around clinical care. Even the Army Auditor General acknowledges the backlog of unused reports. It found nearly 90% of recent Army studies don't even include recommendations. Nick Schwollenbach is with the Project on Government Oversight. My jaw dropped a bit because... The harmful behaviors addressed involve suicide, sexual assault, sexual harassment, drug use, domestic violence. In the report, the Army couldn't answer why there hadn't been better follow-through on the Army's own research. We may have people who are literally losing their lives because research is gathering dust somewhere. So there are real consequences here. Families often look to Congress. The family of seaman recruit Xavier Mitchell Sander are supporting legislation working to improve living conditions for sailors on board ships and maintenance. Congressman Bobby Scott's district covers the shipyard in Newport News. He's seen several bills filed. We need to address the underlying causes and we need to make sure that those who are in particular stress get the care that they need. We cannot accept the number of suicides in the Navy. Scott is co-sponsoring a separate bill to require the Navy to have a trained mental health professional for units who have 15 or more sailors on limited duty after four sailors died by suicide in Norfolk. He expects the language to tackle suicide will be included in the defense bill, currently moving through the House. For NPR News, I'm Steve Walsh. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what video games can teach us about economics, business, money, and careers. Some spots of patchy fog this morning, and it'll be cloudy today with a good chance of rain and storms throughout the day. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s. Those fall to the upper 60s tonight, and more showers and storms are likely. Tomorrow, cloudy and 80s with yet more showers and storms possible. It's 66 degrees in Boston. Worcester Polytechnic Institute and the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester are creating a new program to help students get their master's degrees. Students at Holy Cross will be able to complete their undergrad degrees there. They can then get their Master of Science or Engineering at WPI. It's unclear if WPI plans to add more master's degrees to the program in the future. 
Woburn-based Continuous Pharmaceuticals is pulling out of a plan to build a new manufacturing facility there. The company tells the Boston Business Journal it could not get a permit it needed to start building. Continuous says it's looking for a new location for the project. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Stephanie Shoro presents Boston Harbor Island's adventure, The Great Brewster Journal of 1891, July 18th. More at portersquarebooks.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign is coming under fire for an ad that's being described as homophobic. It attacks former President Donald Trump, the current GOP frontrunner, for his past claims of support for LGBTQ plus people, including after the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016. I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens. That is the ad, and it cuts to images of DeSantis along with headlines featuring the governor's support for legislation deemed anti-trans. One group criticizing the ad is the Log Cabin Republicans, which says it represents LGBT conservatives. Its president is Charles Moran, who joins us now. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. So your group said this ad strayed into homophobic territory. What was so egregious about this ad? Well, it really takes into consideration the fact that this ad didn't really have a purpose and didn't really have a point. Mm -hmm. And when you start looking at some of the imagery that they were using, something that you mentioned, like President Trump trying to bring some unity for the country together after the Pulse nightclub shooting, again, advocating for equal rights and equal treatment for LGBT individuals, this is something that the GOP has already basically agreed upon. The Republican Party, if you look at recent national polling, more than a majority supports equality for marriage for LGBT individuals. Republicans provided the necessary critical votes to push the respect for marriage vote over the line last year in the House and the Senate. So the Republican Party has really moved on on a lot of these issues. And Ron DeSantis, instead of choosing to target some of the more radical and extreme fringe of the LGBT movement, as we've seen with radical gender theory and as we've been seeing an attack on parental rights, He chose to go after Republicans who are actually doing good things for the party and doing good things for for the public. We saw, again, that that criticism of Donald Trump coming after the Pulse nightclub shooting. We saw, you know, attack on people like Caitlyn Jenner. There was drag queens in the show that, you know, are well known in the conservative movement for being, you know, very pro-America, very of America first. Ron DeSantis could have focused on some of the more fringe elements of of the movement, and we've seen a lot of that in in Pride Month. But instead, he turned his attack on Republicans who are actually trying to help the party and trying to actually help the movement. So it it there is a lot, of, and, and then you've got some strange imagery of Ron DeSantis being between two oiled up, hunky type of men. I mean, the ad smacked of both homophobia and homoeroticism at the same time. So anybody who's a political professional looking at this is is really just very confused as to what the point of this ad was and what the intention of it was. So this ad was, of course, a t- an attack on, on Trump specifically. Why do you think mm-hmm. uh, the DeSantis campaign is doing this? Why are they attacking him specifically in this way? Um, a misguided attack like this shows that they really don't have a, a focus and are, are not don't have anybody on their team who is un- truly understanding where the movement is. 
And that, that style of, uh, uh, of attack is just not, is gonna backfire and is not helpful for his campaign or the GOP in general. That's Charles Moran. He is the president of the Log Cabin Republicans. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Stephen Skeep. You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on riots in, in France that appear to be calming after several days of violent protests in response to the shooting of a teenager during a police traffic stop. It's 849. A year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, data is rolling in on the after-effects. One finding? Abortions didn't actually decline that much around the country, in part because of donations that came in from the public. New funds popped up, people were generous, there was like this sense of emergency and funds came in. But will that last in year two? That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. At least eight Palestinians are dead amid Israeli drone strikes today in the West Bank. Thousands of hotel workers in Southern California are striking for better pay and benefits. And U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen will travel to China this week to help ease tensions between the two countries. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. Showers and storms possible all day today, otherwise cloudy, and in the low 80s, the rain may continue tonight as we dip into the 60s. Tomorrow, back to the 80s with more showers and storms likely during the day. It's 66 degrees in Boston. What now for student loan borrowers? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash whyschwab. From Marketplace, I'm Novasafo in for David Brancaccio. Repayments begin again in October for 43 million Americans who would have had their student loans partially or fully forgiven, but for the Supreme Court decision Friday striking down the Biden administration's debt cancellation plan. Now the Education Department is looking at new ways to help borrowers. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. When student loan borrowers are forced to make their first payments in over three years this fall, they'll still have some extra leeway for 12 more months under what the Biden administration is calling an on-ramp. If certain borrowers miss payments during that period, they won't be considered delinquent or put in default, and they won't be reported to credit agencies or debt collectors. The administration is also creating a new repayment plan that would slash the amount borrowers would have to pay each month, from 10% down to 5% of their discretionary income. And the Education Department has started a rulemaking process aimed at finding other ways to forgive some student debt. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. And let's do the numbers. 
Well, on Wall Street, investors are dawdling on this shortened trading day. Overseas, they're generally upbeat. The Shanghai Composite Index closed up one and three tenths percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UiPath. More than 10,000 organizations use the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform to automate business processes. It's a smarter way to innovate. More at uipath.com/marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation. And by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get home projects done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at angie.com or on the Angie app. Video games are bigger than movies and music combined. So, what can the games and their industry teach us about economics, business, and careers? David Brancaccio sets off to answer that question in our series "Skin in the Game." Today, younger game developers and the economic forces changing neighborhoods. What you are looking at right now is a motion tracking suit. Suman Tedros is all velcroed up in a black jumpsuit studded with wireless sensors. As he moves his limbs, a digital mannequin on a screen tracks his movements. Suman, a high schooler, is learning how to use a motion capture suit to create a virtual character in a video game. It is pretty fun. Uh, very expensive, though. So if you it's part of a nonprofit mentoring program in Oakland, California, called Game Heads, where starting in high school, people go from playing video games to making them. It's striking to see how students focus on creating games that draw from their lived experience. Some explore anxiety or grief or matters economic. Rogelio Lara was 16 when he came to Game Heads. The concept of the game is trying to explain to people gentrification in the eyes of a cashier. That's the best way of describing it. It's a complex idea to take on. What is gained and what is lost when higher-income people move into a lower-income part of town? Rogelio's team calls the game "Here's Your Change." Players scroll across a sidewalk to a corner store. Early in the game, you see buildings that are worse for wear, but inside the shop, players find the cashier personable. And at one with her customers. One of the first game levels is, hey, this guy comes in. He's like, hey, man, have you listened to my mixtape? And it's like we were having a little bit of fun here and there. But the idea premise is, when individuals enter into this neighborhood, you get to、uh, know these individuals from a personal into. Interconnected level, right? You get to understand the cultural aspect of it, the dialect, right, the slang. But as the you continue to play the game, the next level then becomes more of a gentrified neighborhood. The student team created a series of dialogues between the customer, meaning you, the player, and the cashier. Enough back and forth bits of conversation, and the game takes you up a level where the street view is getting spruced up. But here's the thing: as the neighborhood gets glossier, the interactions with the cashier. Get more formal. You have this sense of community where things are followed down to not necessarily strict laws, but more like unwritten social rules. But now, as gentrification begins to start, these conversations are starting to disappear. This is a very, I need something from you. You need something from me. There's no personal level there. It's, it's very, it's very kind of sad. Brandon,、uh, it was actually a cashier when we were making this game. So we asked him opinions on, like, hey, is this a realistic conversation? That second voice is fellow student game developer Brandon Charles. He joined Game Heads while also working in a real place in Oakland owned by his family, selling groceries and drinks. As the neighborhood attracted people with more money, he saw brands of bottled water at his store go upscale. 
Now, some changes were welcome, like the store starting to sell fresh fruit and vegetables, but he wanted his game to reflect the shift in tone he noticed. You get people coming in and be like, hey, do you have this product? And you're like, I don't even know what that is. Um, or you'll have people come in and be like, do you take this up of payment? I'm sorry, we don't. Tell me, how does the payment change over time in the game? Um, so to start off, you can take credit card, but you can't take like things like Apple Pay or stuff like that. Then eventually that changes, um, and you end up being able to take Apple Pay in the second stage. And then towards the end, you can't take cash. You can only take like cards or Apple Pay or just more electronic-based stuff. Um, where in the beginning, it was very focused on uh, the cash format. You had to actually like get change and stuff like that. Um, which is where the phrase, here's your change, comes from. Lisette T. Tree Montgomery is a video game art director with more than 20 years' experience who's worked on some big titles, including Sims 4 and Psychonauts 2. She teaches at GameHeads and is on the advisory board. She calls, here's your change, an empathy exercise. So how do you take a concept as complex as gentrification and turn it into a topic that you can play? Well, you hone out on the verbs, the words of things that the player can do, sell, buy, then distill that into a specific moment or scene or experience that, that they can turn into a playable experience or game. Rogelio has just finished college, wants to teach, and to develop video games to help him do that. As for Brandon, at some level, he's living the dream. He once wanted to be an anesthesiologist, but with game heads under his belt, He's now finished college and has a job designing virtual experiences for one of Star Wars director George Lucas's companies in San Francisco. And that's David Brancaccio with our series Skin in the Game. It's airing over the coming weeks. We'll also have video on our YouTube channel at Marketplace APM. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. The Sumner Tunnel from East Boston to downtown will close for the summer on Wednesday, and that's going to cause traffic headaches in a lot of different places. Right now, WBUR.org, get advice on how to get around the closure. Low 80s and overcast today with a good chance of rain and storms all day and into the evening. It falls into the 60s tonight. Tomorrow, more showers and storms are possible, and it'll be back in the 80s. Right now, it's 66 degrees and Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.